The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, along with Jay Llewellyn. You can find out more at donfox.net or call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all. Good morning, Scott. Obviously, uh, lots going on, lots going on, a recent budget, uh, obviously interest rates going up this week. Uh, You just hold the reins steady here, Don. What do you do? Yeah, you're not kidding, Scott. Uh, One of those, you know, in our life, there's always budget times. It's all of a sudden we have to peak our interest, keep on top of it. On top of that, we've got interest rates rising right now. And, you know, clients are wondering what's going to happen. housing prices what about investments how do bonds affected what about their portfolio and again i honestly don't know how people do it without a financial planner because there's so many so many moving parts and again housing a huge part of uh, the discussion this time out and i know jay you want to touch on this is this a housing crash a housing crash or correction yeah i wish i knew the answer and today i'm gonna I'm going to kind of talk out of both sides of my mouth and give people a little bit of perspective, but hopefully we can shed some light on that. You know, when Don and I sit down with clients, often the first question in the last, probably last year is, you know, should I sell my house? Should I rent? You know, for a lot of retirees, they're looking at cashing in on their properties. And then the other side is, you know, do I help out my kids? First time homebuyers, how do they buy a house? Um, Or should I buy a house for investment purposes? You know, real estate seems like a good investment. Um, If I wish I would have bought two years ago and I would have made 30% on my investment, should I, is it still a good investment? So uh, kind of go through the, the concerns that people have, obviously, like you mentioned with the rising interest rates, is it affordable to buy a house, right? The average price of houses in, in, the, in the GTA is around a million dollars. So you put 20% down on a house, that's $200,000. Where do you come up with that, first of all, um, if you're a first-time home buyer and just out of university and, and just starting to get your, your feet wet? Um, so you got to come up with a $200,000 down payment. You don't have to, but let's say you put a $200,000 down payment on an $800,000 or a million-dollar house. You've got an $800,000 mortgage. Well, if you're in a variable rate and you got lucky enough and you got a 2% rate for 25 years, that's going to cost you 3,400 bucks a month, but that's not the end of it, right? You've got property taxes, call it $800 a month. You've got insurance, another hundred dollars a month, utilities, another $700 a month before you're, before you're done. Um, you're at $5,000 after tax just for your, just to run the house. Never mind, You haven't even eaten yet or stepped yeah. out of the house to drive your car. So, mm. and, you know, Driving a car, another thing, rising gas prices, it's getting more costly to drive a car. Um, the cost to run a car is, is, is more, uh, the cost of goods is more. Everything's costing more these days. So what we really suggest is that you, you make sure that you have a sustainable budget. Sit down with your, your financial planner and make sure you've got a sustainable, sustainable budget to, to run that household. Because the, 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 the crux of it all is that $5,000 a month to run a household isn't cheap. And that's after tax. So, um, so back to buying a house. Whether it whether it makes sense to buy a house if we're in a, a in a boom or a bust or a crash, 
I really don't know. Um, what I do know is that as mortgage rates rise, generally history uh, dictates that housing prices will drop. Um, the demand to move out of your house, the demand for rental properties, the, the demand for houses in general, when there's a when there's a correction in mark in interest rates, it drops the price of houses. And we've seen that in the last month. The, the price of houses in Toronto has dropped about 2.6% from, from February to March. Now that could be a bunch of different things. It could be that there's less inventory so uh, a lot of the houses being sold are, are lower value homes uh, and the, those multi-million dollar homes aren't being sold. So there's a bunch of different factors that could play into that average. So I don't put a lot of weight in that 2.6 over one month. Um, let's look at it over a couple months before we start pulling the ripcord and saying that prices hmm. of houses are dropping. Uh, one of the big things during the last little while that people don't consider is construction costs for the homes. So, you know, if anyone did a renovation in the last little while, realizes how much it costs to do things now. So construction costs over the last two years have gone up 25%. So rising, that's, that's part of the reason for the, the rise in the price of houses. Yeah, the demand's there and, and there's been a, a steady inflow of people trying to buy homes. Um, the government, as Don will talk about a little bit in the next segment about uh, the foreign tax or, or foreign buyers, how the, the budget has come in and they're trying to sway people, uh, foreigners from coming in and buying houses and, and using them for investment purposes and not occupying them. So those things have definitely come into play. Uh, land costs have gone up 25%. So that's driven the price of houses up. So people look at it and say, geez, you know, is this inflated? Are, they, are these price of houses realistic? Is this what's really going on? Well, yeah, with the inflation that's gone on, it's a little bit justified. Um, and it's not not just all inflate or uh, speculation type buying and the rise of the price of houses going out of control for no reason. There's, there's some justification for this. Um, on the flip side, looking at if, if you should be renting or if rents are going to start to increase. So people are looking at buying properties for investment purposes, um, but rents aren't quite there. They're not justifying the price of houses. So it's not as attractive to investors to buy a property right now and use it for a rental property because the return on it isn't just what it was, you know, even, even a few years ago. Um, so looking at, looking at that rent ratio, uh, there's something called a cap rate. Um, when you buy an investment property, you look at what the cap rate is, and the cap rate is your your net operating income uh, minus what your uh, what your what your fees are. So, um, if you look at what what your income is minus minus any taxes and many any any condo fees or any other fees that you have to pay as a as a homeowner, divided by the current market value, and that sounds a little complex, but basically, if you have a million dollar house and you get thirty thousand dollars a year rent and $6,000 is your taxes and all expenses in, you're netting $24,000 in, in rental income on a million dollar property. So that 24,000 is 2.4% return. So in Don and our, our world, you know, you can, you can invest in a dividend fund these days and get somewhere around 4% um, with, in, a, in a simple dividend fund in a bank stock or something like that. Whereas the rental properties are getting 2.4%. So just a few years ago, five years ago, that 2.4% was probably closer to 5%. And then 15 years ago, it was 10%. So 
15 years ago, you buy a, bought a property, you were getting 10% return on your investment with the rental, plus it was appreciating in value. And we know what real estate's done in the last little while. So there's a lot of people looking at looking at real estate and saying, geez, this is, this is a no-brainer. Everyone made money in the last 15 years. I think I should just be putting my money into real estate. And it's not the case. Um, real estate definitely is, is, a, is a place where you can invest in it. It's part of a diversified portfolio, but not the end all and be all. Um, but well, that's we've, the question uh, we're getting from. Yeah, yeah and we're ahead. all, we, I, I make a good point, Jay. I think everybody has forgotten that prices drop. Real estate does not go up every year. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, you, we can go back to the early 80s before I bought a house. Um, and there, you know, interest rates took off into the, you know, 20% area. And then housing prices dropped accordingly because it was very unaffordable. And then I remember, uh, you know, started my career about 1986, you buy a house and about two years later, it literally doubled. But then it, it stayed there. In fact, it went down through the 90 recession about 25%. My second purchase of a house, literally, I bought my house and I had it appraised about a year later, it was down 25%. Incredible. And you know, and, and I think people forget these are equity investments and all equity investments have the risk of both up and down. And when there's a 30% rise in the, the housing market, that is not normal. And it, everything reverts to the mean eventually. How, how mm-hmm. you were talking earlier, Jay, about interest rates and how, you know, when interest rates do go up, it does, it does cool the, the, price, the price on homes and such. But how much does it have to go up before you start to see that effect? Is it just a little bit? Is it a quarter point, half a point, a full point before you really start to see a significant impact in the price of a house? Right. So, you know, in recent times, we've seen interest rates rise uh, a half a percent, a quarter percent just in the last little while. And and looking at what that does, that little bump in in interest rate. So for use my example that what I started with there, that million dollar house with the eight hundred thousand dollar mortgage, if it jumps up one and a one and a quarter percent, your payments go from thirty four hundred to thirty nine hundred very quickly. And that's a $500 increase in your monthly cash flow. So if you were living on a, on a tight budget as it was, I use the example again, if you had $5,000 in expenses and now you've got $5,500 in expenses before eating or gra- gassing up your car or anything, $500 is a lot. That's six grand a year. Um, so just a slight increase in, in interest rates will, will definitely pull back on, the, on the, the home buyers because there's less people out there that are, it's affordable for. So then it flips back to going into rent, right? People say, well, we can't afford to buy a house right now because we can't afford the monthly payment, never mind the deposit or the down payment. So they revert back to renting. So now the demand for rent picks up and, and rent goes up. And then that, that, that balancing act where you've got rent going up. So now what's more attractive for investors to buy those properties because they can get more income and increasing that cap rate, like we were talking about. So again, talking out of both sides of my mouth, if you, if you, <laughs> if, if you raise interest rates, um, the price of houses goes down, but if you, if the price of houses goes down, it's more attractive for investors to get in and buy those properties, which drives the house the price of houses back up. So there's, it's a catch 22, whether you're, you're, you're in it for rent, or if you're in it for a rental income, or you need to live somewhere and and as your principal residence. So um, another, another silent killer that people aren't identifying, and we've talked about it on the show before is there's kind of a false economy right now where parents and grandparents are helping out these kids, uh, lending them money to put money down on these houses. So people are in a position where they shouldn't be buying million dollar homes. 
Um, mm. And they're, and they're given, you know, a hundred thousand or 200,000 of these down payments to make it viable for them to buy the house from their grandparents. So they didn't earn that money. They didn't, they didn't save that money. And that money's coming out of, let's say investment portfolios or GICs or savings accounts. So it wasn't really working in the economy necessarily as it was. And now it's stimulating the economy by putting that $200,000 down on a, on a purchase of a home that really wasn't earned. And so it's a little bit of a, a false economy, I say, with, with the price of houses where it is and making it affordable for people to buy these houses. I, I would venture to guess that it's not exactly affordable for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people are borrowing money from their parents and grandparents. And again, uh, supply and demand, simple economics uh, yeah. is the supply of houses is still pretty limited. Um, we're seeing what we're seeing. And it seems we haven't been wanting to build for, for a period of time. So it's, it's caught up with us. Uh, we are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here as well. Jay Llewellyn from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Jay Llewellyn are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905 972 7420. All right, Don, uh, obviously a big budget coming down a while ago and lots of chatter about inflation, lots of chatter about housing as well. Yeah, a lot of, you know, they touched on a lot of things. I'm going to go through kind of a, you know, a 10,000 foot view of the whole budget and, and then I'll key in on a few things a little later. But the first one and probably the most significant, um, and for a financial planner, this is like, uh, this will be part of many people's financial plan going forward. And that would be the tax free first home savings account and uh, quite a, a it, it could be a fantastic and it's going to be coming out next year so it's not for 2022 it's for 2023 and will be part of almost everybody trying to save money for their first home and I'm going to go and talk about this in detail later but that is that is probably the most significant change um, for anybody trying to save for a house and again it goes in it's going to be it's always trying to catch up to the housing prices and if they do stay, stay stable for a bit or even come down, this could be a fantastic tool to help those first home, uh, first home buyers get their first house. So uh, I love that. And we're going to go get into that in more detail later. Um, the other one I, I think is a, it's overdue and it's the residential property flipping rule. I think this is like, we've been talking about this for years. Um, I'm glad somebody has finally done something with this. And, uh, you know, kudos on the Liberals, and I guess NDP in this case, <laughs> for putting this one through. Um, it starts next year, January 1st, 2023. And if you've owned a house for less than a year, it will be considered business income. And so you get a lot of people, particularly, um, and I don't want to pick on anybody in particular, but let's say a tradesperson that's very handy or very handy kind of homeowner and they'll buy a house, fix it up, sell it within a year. And, and basically it covers under the principal residence rules and it may have gone up 50, hundred grand. And then they buy another house and they keep doing that. Great way to increase their wealth, but it's a great way around the rules. And the principal resident rules weren't about trying to flip houses. It was about 
you know, having your, you know, slowly paying off a house, living there for quite a long time, getting your next house, living there for a while. It wasn't about trying to earn money. It was more about giving you a path for home ownership. And so this, this is overdue, like I mentioned, and it's all business income. In fact, even the rental properties, if you bought a rental property, got it all fixed up and then sold it within a year, it's no longer a capital gain. It would be also business income. Now, they did have anti-avoidance rules for, for people that bought several homes. And it was never clear how many, is it four homes you can buy and, and turn over in a certain period of time? It was like, okay, then it would become a business rather than simply uh, an investment. So if it's an investment, capital gain rules apply. But if it's a business, then it's considered business income, it's added to your income. Well, now it's really straightforward. If you've owned it for less than a year, it is business income, regardless if it's your only home or whether you're an investor. So I, I think this is great. It's also try, what they're trying to do is basically lower the demand for, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many people, and this happens when housing prices go up like this, that want to get in the market and they're taking advantage of this rising market and just flipping and flipping and flipping. Mm-hmm. And that's that increased demand, low supply is just, as we've just seen, housing prices are going up over 30% in the last year. So both those are, are great. Um, there's a, a, another um, proposal is the multi, multi-generational home renovation tax credit. Okay, uh, lots of words. <laughs> it's a mouthful to say the least, but basically, I, again, I love this. You can spend up to $50,000 to improve your house. And it's for perhaps you want to have your the mother-in-law suite or the your anybody over the age of 64 or disabled and over 17. So you're I hope helping. my mom's not listening. I don't want to, I don't want her moving in with me. <laughs> yeah, I, This is an incentive I for her to move in with me. I don't want her moving in with me. <laughs> Wait a sec. Wait a sec. You got to move out before they can move in. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Right. I haven't moved out of my mom's house. I'm still in the basement. Right. <laughs> we all went, we all went back in over COVID. Uh, weirdly enough it doesn't it isn't for the parents doing it for their teenage kids oh okay it's not that way you don't get a tax credit it's only the other way and it's fifty thousand dollars of increase now these would be things for the labor uh building materials fixtures um permits um if you have to rent equipment to build things to help to renovate the it is not for things that you can move around after the fact and maintain some value um, for example, it's not for furniture and it's not for tools. No, if you're no, no big person. screen, no big screen TV included in that. Weirdly <laughs> enough, not. I thought that was like, uh, you know, I missed. I think they missed that one. Actually, I yeah. think that should have been. But next time. Uh, yeah, probably any audio visual equipment. Funny enough, that's written right in the rule. So I guess they didn't miss it. <laughs> um, so none of those. But it, uh, things such as financing costs and routine maintenance, gardening, security also don't qualify. But it, a $50,000 improvement in the house so that somebody can live there, either, as I said, a, a senior or uh, somebody over 17 that has a disability and qualifies for the disability tax credit. So that's also part of it. Anyway, it works out in their pocket of a $7,500 tax savings or up to that. So it's, it's either $50,000 or what you spent in the renovation. So if you spent $45,000, you can't claim fifty; You can only claim forty-five. dollars straightforward. Um, they also going with the housing. Um, and again, they understand there's a big bubble of people getting old, older 
and you know, getting up there in years. The whole baby boom's getting older. I think the leading edge is probably about 68, 69 now. And they're making rules for us. And I'm part of I'm at the lower end of that. I'm thinking I caught the last year. Probably you too, Scott. No, no, you're absolutely wrong there. <laughs> uh, I, I got AstraZeneca on my first shot, so I am not a boomer and neither are you. And don't buy into that, Don. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. I'm going to tell my kids I'm no longer a boomer. That's, that's right. They call me. No, <laughs> so, they're wrong. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but they did double the uh, dis, uh, home accessibility tax rate. So this is to make the house more accessible for people over 65. Again, qualifying for the disability tax credit. And so, again, what to $10,000 is easy. You can barely put a ramp up for $10,000. So now they've doubled that to $20,000. So, again, um, I think that's a great improvement. And makes, you know, here we are, they, they've touched the bases on saving for a house, flipping. And they're also watching uh, those corporations in Canada that are, are buying houses and renting them out. They haven't made a rule on them. They just said, be aware, we're watching you guys. And you probably heard some of those commercials. And I know right here in Hamilton, they are on the looks. Hamilton has been prime spot. They go out, buy houses, and they look to rent them out. And, uh, and they get a consortium of, it's almost like a mutual fund. And they take that money and they buy these little houses all over the place. And they use them for rentals. Now, again, all it does is increase the demand. We don't have more supply. So that, that again... All these, all these factors, whether it's the parents lending money to their kids, whether it's foreign buyers, whether it's uh, these investors, they all increase the demand. So they're trying to lower the demand side because the supply side is harder to change quickly, but the, the demand side's easier. Uh, another change was a, a labor mobility deduction for tradespeople. Um, seems very sensible. Up to $4,000 you can spend as a credit. And it's, uh, it's when you move up, say, let's say you, got a, you, you live in Hamilton, you're an electrician, and you got a job up in the Muskoka. Well, it has to be 150 kilometers away. So Muskoka would probably qualify. I think it's probably, what, two quarter. And, uh, and you have to live there for more than 36 hours. And it's to pay for the accommodations while you're living away from your resident. So again, this happens frequently. And, and the idea here is hard to get tradespeople. Uh, up in the Muskoka area or cottage country, they're in high demand. So this is an incentive to bring some from the city, if you will, and move them over to the, the country. Um, and for that matter, it's hard to get tradespeople in the city. So this is, they're, they're in high demand anyway. Yeah, we live um, in our little bubble here in the GTA, right, where we've got access to unlimited, it seems like unlimited population, whereas if you're, you're out in you know, Northern Manitoba or something like that. It's not even cottage country. It's just, you want something done to your house in these areas across Canada. It's impossible. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Good, good point. Yeah. This is not just for our little world here. It's uh, Canada's a big country. So yeah. yeah, they, they have to travel 150 kilometers all the time and mm -hmm. stay over. So, you know, they, now they have a up to $4,000 a year. They can, they can get a credit on that. Um, this one here probably doesn't apply to either, you know, Jay or Scott, but they've reduced the, they've taken away the excise duty for beer under 0.5% alcohol. <laughs> so that's water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can get that out of my tap for free. Yeah. almost. <laughs> well, uh, I didn't actually know they even charged excise tax on beer under 0.5%. They have all these new beers, I guess. Uh, and I've seen, Apparently they're okay. I had one sip once. It was uh, close to water, like you said, Scott. But they're charging the full excise tax 
yeah. on these very low alcohol beers and they've already reduced them. They already had no excise tax for the wine and spirits. And I didn't know they had wine and spirits under 0.5%. So anyhow, uh, a great way to encourage people to buy those and the uh, allows the designated driver not to pay the excess tax on that. So that's great. And that's effective July 1st, 20 this year. Uh, a big one, and this one's controversial. Uh, it's the Canadian recovery, recovery dividend. And the banks were fighting this one tooth and nail. I can't blame them really. This is a one-time 15% tax for banks and life insurance companies. And this is a massive tax. This, they're expecting this to bring in $6 billion. And it's based on, a, there's a, a, a billion dollar exemption. But again, we often hear what the banks are earning. And everybody's points to the bank saying, well, look how much they're making. And so they get to, they have to pay this tax and it equal installments over the next five years. It's, it's to help with this recovery after the pandemic. I think they're easy targets because Canada doesn't have the Amazons of the world. We have them here, but we don't have, they're not located. Their head office is, is not here. They're a U.S. company. And so banks are the biggest profit machines in Canada. And so they're going after those. Now, who are the banks? Everybody always points to the banks. Who owns these people? Who owns the banks? Shareholders. So if you are taking the money away from the banks, you're actually hurting all the shareholders of the banks, not the employees of the banks. And the banks are, are not, you've got to remember, shareholders own the banks. So in everybody's investments, we all have banks. The pension plans all have banks. Canadian banks are one of the safest investments going. So basically, you've just lowered their profits which will have impact everybody in Canada. And so everybody's return on those on the banks will be a little less. I don't think they'll cut their dividend, but it just means the profits will be less so that your bank shares, which is part of your, probably your RSP, are going to go down. And if you're part of you know, a teacher's pension or if you're part of a, any type of group pension, um, everyone has banks in them. And they're probably the highest holding of any any pension fund are banks so again it sounds easy oh yeah just tax those banks they make billions of dollars well yes they do but as shareholders probably every listener owns shares of the banks yeah. so it's kind of a double-edged sounds sword me, there sounds to me like bank fees are going up <laughs> yeah that's probably what <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah well yeah. they're passing that down for sure they're going to be yeah. passing that down or the profits go down um, but boy yeah. but boy we showed them didn't we <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Exactly. Um, talking about banks, uh, not only they got this one-time hit, they've also got a, a hit that's going to continue on of a one and a half percent tax for anybody, any, all the banks over the first hundred million. And this starts uh, April seventh, twenty twenty twenty-three this year. And um, banks and life insurance companies always say banks, but it's both um, financial institutions basically. And so. You know, they're going to all get this extra tax. Nobody else is getting these taxes. So if uh, there's a corporation in Canada that is making more than the banks, they don't have to pay this excess tax. So right now, they're kind of picking on the banks a bit. They are also clamping down on the Canadian-controlled private corporations. So they're making some anti-avoidance rules there to, to make it more difficult to avoid rules. Uh, the one we, we may have heard of, most listeners may have heard of, they have... Uh, made dental care for Canadians. And this was a big NDP platform. This is part of the coalition between the NDP and Liberals. And this year for any children under 12 years old, they will get free dental care as long as their family that doesn't make more than $90,000 and or 
they uh, make less than $70,000 and there's no copay from a company that they're part of. Um, next year, it's gonna be children under the age of 18, all seniors, 65 or greater, and anybody who's disabled will qualify for free dental care. And then 2025, it's full implementation, which I assume means anybody will get dental care as long as their family doesn't earn a certain amount. Who knows what it'll be at that time? Currently, it's $90,000. As Jay alluded to in his segment there, there's a ban on foreign investment in Canadian housing. Um, again, we're trying to limit the demand, and this is another part of it. And what we they did in BC, they made a, a big inroads in stopping foreign investment there. Well, they all moved to Toronto area, GTA area. And so you saw a massive influx of foreigners buying property in the GTA. So, and there's a chart that I saw recently showing the foreign investment. It's gone down there and actually just, it's just a knee-jerk reaction gone up here. Well, this is for non-recreational property. This is kind of interesting. It, you got to understand what is recreational property, what isn't. So a lot of people are living in their cottages slash houses now. So that'd be tricky. I, I think they'll have to define that. And uh, it's only for, it's a two-year ban. So I like also they're fixing up the Canadian trails. I know, Jay, you love to do some hiking uh, as I do, and they're going to spend $55 million. We got 27,000 kilometers of trails in Canada, and they're going to spend some money in fixing those up. And uh, they're going to spend some money in the, on the military. So overall, they've done a lot. One thing they missed is the advanced life deferred annuity. They had this back in the 2019 budget. It was for to put up to $150,000. It's supposed to be part of that budget. COVID hit. And it seems to have just been swept under the rug. And you could put up to $150,000. And it was to protect people from aging, basically, um, longevity risk. So they could get an annuity that would kick in at age 85. I love that. I wish they would have brought it back, but it was not part of this budget. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Jay Llewellyn are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or call them at IG, uh, IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Jay Llewellyn are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. We've talked about this many times, uh, the importance of having a financial plan, but what are the elements of a comprehensive financial plan? Jay? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we have several listeners that are, are, I know, hard to believe that they're not clients. And we've got these, these listeners that want to become clients. So they, they call us up and they, they ask for an appointment. And generally what we do is we have a discovery meeting with these clients. And the first thing we'll ask them, or one of the things we'll ask them to bring into the, into the meeting is their, their financial plan from their existing advisor. And more often than not, and Don can attest to this, that the financial plan usually consists of an investment statement is probably the, the basic plan that they think 
they have. And then there might be some kind of asset allocation. But in general, most clients that come to us or most listeners that come to us don't have an actual financial plan. So today I just want to go through what constitutes a financial plan and what what's part of a financial plan and what you should be looking for from your financial advisor as part of a plan. So the first thing, um, when we sit down with someone in our discovery meeting, we look at and we say, what are your financial goals? You know, what are or do you want to retire at a certain age? Do you want to be debt-free, buy a vacation property? Uh, what do you want from the plan? So there has to be a kind of roadmap to what the plan is. If you're just saying you want to retire and there's no number or no value, then it's it's kind of obscure and not really a plan. It's more of just an assessment as opposed to a plan. Um, the number one thing that we go through is cash flow uh, or a budget. Uh, people people are curious um, why we asked for this information. And, and we look at it and say, well, you know, if you're asking if you can retire at a certain age, we need to know what you need. And, and again, people are curious and saying, well, what do you mean? What do I need? I need to live off of what I, what I make right now. Well, maybe they don't. Um, so we go through a detailed cash flow. We look at all the specifics um, from dinners out to your propane costs on your cottage to, to <laughs> everything, that, everything that's out there. There's, there's so many things that people miss and they think they go through their own budget and they look at basically their fixed expenses, but they don't go through in detail gifts, donations, all these things that come into play that they want to continue to do during retirement. So we have to look at spending now and then what you're looking at doing in retirement and what are those goals and what is, what is part of that cash flow look like in retirement? Um, most people don't know what their actual budgets are. Um, most people don't go through a budget. It's very painful for a lot of people. A lot of people don't like finances. So that's our job. We go through the cash flow with them and, and see what their budget is. You know, look at what their income is, look what they're spending. Often it's they're correlated. They spend what they make, but um, it, often, often there's other cash left over at the end of the day and they don't need all their resources. So we extrapolate that out and we look at, look at what their cash flow is and then, and then uh, do an analysis on what their needs will be in retirement. The other thing is net worth. So uh, we, we, we take a baseline today. How much are you worth? What, it, what have you got? You know, RSPs, TFSA, real estate, your principal residence. And then what are your current debts? Uh, mortgages, car loans, lines of credit. Um, and then we dive deeper into that and look at the assets, the type of investments. Um, are they income generating? Are they capital appreciation investments? Are they, are they rental properties where you're getting an income coming in? Don was talking about, about the budget, about different types of income and how they're being treated um, and, and with your real estate properties. Um, your debts, what type of interest rates are you getting? What are the terms? Are they tax deductible? Are they not tax deductible? So, so many different things you look at as opposed to just saying, here's what it is and here's my investment statements. Am I going to be able to retire? Um, it's not as simple as that. Um, another thing is debt management. So is it likely to increase? Is it likely to decrease? Are you looking to buy a, a more expensive property? Are you just starting out and, and thinking you're going to expand your family? So you're going to incur more debt. Um, do you need to do a home renovation? So there's just all like lots of different things when it comes to debt as well, where it's not just static. It's not just paying down your mortgage. You may buy a car, you know, the price of cars. I just looked the other day in, uh, I was in Waterloo wasting some time when I was dropping my son off at, at his tryout for, ba for baseball. And there was a $112,000 pickup truck in the lot. And I, have, I don't own a pickup truck and I've never shot for a pickup truck, but it was $112,000 for a pickup truck. I was thinking 40,000 and I just, <laughs> I had no clue. I had no clue right. how much they cost. So are, are you, you sure know. that wasn't the cost to fill the pickup truck? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. So debt management, like buying a car now, isn't 
isn't as easy as it once was. It's not a ten thousand uh, dollar hiccup in your financial plan. It's a big investment if you're buying a new car. So it's what it, it's what a down payment on a house used to be, or what a house used to cost. My yes, parents' house. Yeah. 40 years ago was, or 45 years ago, I guess. Um, I remember they said they spent 27,000 on the house. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's crazy what's gone on. Um, Emergency plan. That's one of the, one of the parts of the financial plan. You know, what, what is your backup plan? Are you going going to use a line of credit if you're, you're out of work for a little bit of time or do you have a cash reserve? So we look at what's important to you. Do you, do you care about having a cash reserve or do you just want to kind of use your line of credit as your, as your backup plan? Uh, insurance coverage, uh, the what if scenarios. So do you have health and dental coverage? Is it Does it carry on through retirement? Um, premature death, are you covered for that? Disability, critical illness. So all of these things are part of that comprehensive plan to get you to your retirement goals. A lot of people look and say, well, you know, I want to retire at 55 and they're coming to us at 51 and they haven't put a plan together. So, you know, maybe that, that plan of freedom 55 isn't going to happen. Um, or maybe it is, maybe they've done the right things, but it's going through every detail comprehensively looking at every single detail, not just the investments, looking at what's important to the client. What's, what's the end goal. Um, and then we put together a plan and say, okay, we've got a couple things here. You know, you either save more, you spend less, you work longer, or you don't live as long. And we, mm. the last one you can't figure out, um, but the, the other three you have control over. So that's that's where we're at with uh, going through a detailed comprehensive plan. If you don't have something like this with your advisor, we definitely encourage you to get a second opinion. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson, Don Fox, and Jay Llewellyn are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905 905- Nine seven two seven four two zero. Another quick break. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson, Don Fox, and Jay Llewellyn are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Don, you were talking at the top of the show about uh, help for those looking to buy the first house. Yes, and they've come out with this THSA. There's, it's a new acronym. It adds to the RSP, TFSA, RDSP, you know, um, HBP. There's all sorts of acronyms, but it stands for Tax-Free First Homes, Home Savings Account. And so it's a little easier just to say THSA. And this is awesome. This literally moves the, moves the needle for financial planning. It's going to be around starting next year. They haven't ironed out all the details. But if you look at all the different kind of registered products, Think of them almost like each one has a superpower, a Marvel character. You got the RSP, you put it in, you save tax. Um, TFSA, you don't save tax, but it grows tax-free. The, the home buyer's plan, you get to take money out of the RSP tax-free to buy your first house. This is like a combo of all these superpowers. It is an awesome idea. I think this is great. Um, basically, and I'll go through the rules here. You have to be a resident of Canada. Um, you couldn't have lived in a home of your own for not only the year year in, but the previous four years. You can contribute up to $8,000 a year, up to $40,000 lifetime to this product. So a great idea. Um, you, uh, if you skip a year, it's not like a TFSA where you can then 
join up and, and double it up. You still can only put in eight, up to $8,000 every year. All the withdrawals are tax-free to buy a house and you don't have to pay it back ever. So it's got the benefit, the TFSA, where you get to take the money out and you get to buy a house. You don't have to pay back so much per year, like 15 years later and, and slowly add it to your income if you miss this payment. Um, even better, like an RSP, when you put the 8,000 in, it is a tax deduction. So it's a tax deduction like an RSP. It grows tax-free like a TFSA. You get to pull it out like a home buyer's plan and you never have to pay it back. Awesome, awesome idea. Um, you can only be, it's only good for one property for your lifetime. You can't get another one afterwards. And, uh, and it can only be used for one home purchase period. Okay. Uh, you can have multiple FHSAs, but it's just similar to a RSP or TFSAs. The government really doesn't care if you have 10 of them. They, it's all the same rules. Okay. And so you can only, when you pull money out, you pull money out and it's, you actually have to close it out within a year. Okay. So if you took the money out, you have to close it out within a year. And if you didn't, it will be all closed out. Now, if you don't buy a house with it, it's added to your income. It is taxable if you didn't buy a house. So it is for a house only, but doesn't mean you couldn't put money in and then it grows and, uh, and you pull it out and it's taxable like an RSP. So absolutely a no brainer. If you have not owned a house yet, it's awesome. You, uh, if you put 8,000 in and you're in the highest tax bracket, you would actually save $4,282 in income tax. That's a 53% tax bracket. So just like an RSP, and then you can take the refund and put that into a TFSA or buy, put more towards a THSA. So you can take that refund and do a lot to help you buy that first house. And you have 15 years. You have 15 years from the time you open that account to buy that first house. Now, let's say you didn't. You're thinking, oh boy, I didn't get that house. You're, you're going to continue to rent. Another great part of this, it can be moved to your RSP. Tax-free to your RSP. Now, of course, when you pull money out of the RSP, it's taxable. But you don't even have to have the RSP room. If you maximize your RSP all those years, and you've been diligent in maximizing your RSP, and you got this THSA, then you still can move all those proceeds, $40,000 plus growth, to your RSP. No, no room required. And so, again, awesome idea. So, And that can be moved either to the RSP or to a RIF. If you've already started a RIF, it can be added to that too. So it's, uh, it's really should be part of a plan. This can be a lot of planning opportunities. No institution has these yet because they're not valid until next year, but it's, it's just going to be, okay, how do we work this? And again, what we always say, it, you know, Jay and I always talk about, it's almost like a puzzle. Every time we sit down with clients, what is the best combination of strategies to make it the most efficient as you can to accomplish your goal? The whole goal in this case is to buy a house. And so therefore, you know, this is the way to do it. Now, this, the, the, another part of this, you can actually move your RSP money to one of these THSAs. So it's a tax-free rollover from the RSP to make your contribution. And then you get the tax. Uh, it, it will fill it up. But why would you do that? You don't get a tax refund on this because you've already made an RSP. But it allows you to, you don't need the home buyer's plan where you mm -hmm. have to pay it back. So you get to take the money out to buy the house. You don't have to pay it back over 15 years. So this is far better than the, the HS, HBP, the home buyer's plan, it, like I said, is literally a combination of all those products wrapped into one 
and steroids. It is fantastic. So an example, if you did put 8,000 a year for five years and you took the proceeds and you're a 30% tax bracket, you'd save 2,400 a year in income tax. You could save $40,000 plus growth. Your refund would go to say a TFSA. It would grow to, there's 24, uh, sorry, $12,000. Combined, there's $52,000 that you save for a house in five years. And it would grow, say at 4%, you'd have about 59,000. So, uh, you know, houses are expensive. This is one more tool in the tool chest to try to get you to that house. As Jay mentioned earlier, it might still mean tapping on your parents on the shoulder to add another 50 grand to this or whatever it might be. But the fact that they're looking at this is a great start. And I, I think this is going to be part of every young person's financial plan going forward. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Jay Llewellyn have been here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Another great show, gentlemen. Thanks so much. Have a great week. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.